Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 249. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. We are here this week to discuss the return of Jafar. Hard to believe it took almost 250 episodes to get to this point, but here we are. And I'm very excited to finally be here because for those who have been following the last couple of weeks as we've been discussing these straight-to-VHS sequels, we usually do hold our final say until the end, but you know how much we love the return of Jafar. And, like, I I feel like a weight's been lifted off, (laughs) especially after last week's uh, Bell's Magical World film. I feel like I can relax, I can breathe, and I can sit back and discuss something that I enjoy. Yes. I mean, I don't think we mentioned how much we enjoy the sequel just in the last couple of weeks that we've been doing the straight-to-video sequels. This has come up before. Yeah. Of the ones that we've watched so far, this is the only one that I have seen prior to doing a review. And not only that, this was one that we owned on VHS. Yep. It was one that I watched a lot. Um, The songs, I mean, this wasn't an instance of, oh, they came right back to me when we were watching them. These songs like live rent free in my head most days. Um, So suffice to say, this is one that we love and... It actually feels like a sequel. Yes, it feels like a sequel that lives in the same timeline. They introduce new characters when it's appropriate. We pick up where we left off with old characters when it's appropriate. Is it the best straight-to-VHS sequel? Should it have gotten a theatrical release? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxCo.com to check out all of the collections. The thief Abbas Small and his men have had a successful night of stealing treasure for which his men are poorly paid. Aladdin and Abu arrive and steal back most of the loot that they later give up to the poor citizens of Agrabah. Meanwhile, Iago and Jafar, who are stuck in his lamp, reemerge from the desert. Iago grows tired of Jafar's insults and leaves the lamp stranded while he heads back to Agrabah. At the palace, Jasmine invites Aladdin to a dinner hosted by the Sultan to celebrate all that he has done for the city. In the marketplace, Iago tries to convince Aladdin that he was under Jafar's control, but Aladdin doesn't believe him. When Abismal and his men arrive to attack Aladdin, Iago inadvertently saves him, leading Aladdin to agree to help him get back into the palace. However, he hides Iago from Jasmine until he sees his plan through. The genie arrives after traveling the world and joins them for dinner. Meanwhile, Abismal finds Jafar's lamp and releases him and becomes convinced to help Jafar take back Agrabah. At the dinner, the sultan names Aladdin, his royal vizier. However, the moment is spoiled when Iago arrives as he tries to escape Abu and Raja. 
Jasmine and the Sultan are infuriated as Aladdin asks to take control of Iago as he has since changed, which the Sultan reluctantly agrees to. Genie convinces Iago to help mend the fences with Aladdin and Jasmine and explains that uh, he explains to Jasmine that he had saved his life in the marketplace. So the two have now reconciled. Abismal and Jafar arrive at the palace and tell Iago that he will help lure Aladdin into their trap. Iago convinces Aladdin to take the Sultan on a carpet ride where Jafar is waiting and captures Abu, Genie, and the Sultan, which leads to Aladdin uh, believing that Iago has double-crossed them. Upon Aladdin's return to the palace, he is apprehended by the palace guards after Jasmine found the Sultan's turban slashed in Aladdin's bedroom and sentences him to death. Jasmine is then captured by Jafar and sees that it was him all of uh, all along. Disguised as Jasmine, Jafar heads to the execution while Iago works to free the genie to help save Aladdin. Jafar exposes his secret to Aladdin just as the genie arrives and saves Aladdin while freeing the rest. Iago is redeemed after helping rescue everyone and the genie tells them that to defeat Jafar, they must destroy the lamp. Jafar showers Abismal with treasure in exchange for his third wish being Jafar's freedom. However, Abismal is reluctant to trust him. Aladdin and the rest arrive to get the lamp, and after a lengthy battle, it is Iago who destroys the lamp and ultimately destroys Jafar. With everything restored to normal, Aladdin rejects the offer to be the royal vizier as he and Jasmine wish to travel the world. Okay, so I'm actually going to raise something that is completely unexpected and I didn't realize until you were reading the plot just now. Okay. We kind of, I don't want to, well, skewered I think is a, a strong word, but when we did Little Mermaid 2, we talked about how it was pretty much a complete retread of The Little Mermaid and we were very hard on it for that. When you think about it, there are a lot of similar beats in Aladdin and Return of Jafar. There's a life saved in the marketplace. There is a liar who connives his way into the palace. There's a genie that needs to be set free with a third wish. So as you're reading this now, I was like, the similarities are all there. And yet this is a completely different film. It does not feel like a retread. Well, that's the thing, because there's enough there where a life gets saved in the marketplace. But if you think about it, other than the desert and the palace, the only other setting is the marketplace. Right. So if anything's going to happen, it's going to be in the marketplace. Um, and we know that Jafar is going to want to be freed from the lamp so that he can take control. What this is really about is Jafar seeing through his revenge, and it's, it's a redemption story for Iago. So... There are similarities there, but The Little Mermaid 2 is literally the same film twice. Right. That's what I'm saying. On paper, there are a lot of similarities here, but this film is so layered and nuanced, it is completely different than its original. Yes. Um. So the opening, we are going to break down the songs a lot more specifically, but I do want to hit on it now. I love that we open with a callback to Arabian Nights. Yes. I think this was such a great way to kick it off. Yeah, it's seamless. It makes it seem like a natural sequel. It makes it seem like a natural, controlled continuation of the original story. Um, I love the familiarity. I always loved that that's how they started us off. 
but they do change up the lyrics a little bit. But I like that it just brings us back to that setting. I also love the setup here with Abismal and his character. I love the name being a play on the word abysmal. Uh, it tells us everything that we need to know about him. And I feel like it develops pretty quickly um, where he's taking his share of the loot and talking about what a great leader he is. And this is my great leader bonus. And that pile is mine. And that pile is mine. I thought that was really clever and just a fun way to kick it off. And you know that he's clearly not the big bad here. I mean, obviously in the title, that's already given away. But you know that he's not really someone that you have to worry about as far as being the bad guy. Correct. Um, the only thing that I wish that they would have fleshed out a little bit more is why all of his men, knowing what a bumbling fool he is and how he's going to cheat them, why they are so willing, at least in the start, to follow his lead. Because it's not like he's got any sort of muscle behind him. It's not like he's got the money to front an exposition. It's not like he has a treasure map. So what is it about him who tends to just kind of trip over himself constantly and trip over into good luck? Any of his men seem like they could have thought this out on their own. That's the only thing, even going back to a going back to watching it as a kid. And I understand Abismal is there for comic relief and you need somebody to be the second fiddle to Jafar, because obviously you lose that in Iago, but I could never understand why they followed his lead, and that's just something that has never aged well, and I think if it stands out to you as a seven-year-old that it's kind of lacking, I do wish, as the years have gone on, that we would have learned a little bit more about why they care so much to follow who is completely, uh, a you know, he's a useless leader. I would agree with that, and... This may sound sort of nitpicky, which I'm not trying to do because the film is otherwise so great. I think that's going to be our challenge this week is to critique this, but not sound like we're being too hard on it because of all the sequels, this is one of the ones that does it best. So this may seem uncalled for, but it's not intentionally coming from a place of trying to pick this apart. Uh, I do agree with you, though, and I think that to strengthen this new character, maybe one of the ways that they could have got around it was giving him a connection to Jafar, or maybe not even a real connection, but maybe that's how he duped the rest of them into following him as a leader. And he made up that he had this connection to Jafar because here's the other challenge with the writing here is that Jafar never had followers. It wasn't like with Ursula where she had Flapsam and Jetsam. Like there was no henchman other than Iago because he worked in the palace. He had the guards at his disposal, but once he was exposed, they were no longer behind him. So it's not like Jafar had this loyal following that's just sort of laying in wait to avenge him. If Abismal concocted that story then I would buy into it and it would have covered, to your point, that one little flaw in a couple of quick throwaway lines. And it would have given Abismal his own agency where you do sort of see him as a little bit more of a villain. Yeah. Um, but I love, I still think the open is great. I love that we immediately get Aladdin and Abu. They are there just doing what they do. They never change. Um 
And I, I love the Abu reveal too, where yes. he's under the treasure chest and they think that it's haunted. Right, because the whole time, you as the viewer are tricked into believing that perhaps they have unearthed the lamp and that this is Jafar the whole time. So yes, I think that the reveal is excellent. And I love that Abu does not want Aladdin to give that treasure back to the people of Agrabah. He wants it for himself. Like, that carries over from the original film, Aladdin giving back to the community, giving back to the people that need it more than him, because they've got a place in the palace, right? I love that these two characters are so familiar, and that, again, the, the transition from the first film to the second is seamless. Yeah, I love that Abu is still sort of slipping back into their old ways. But I mean, he never wanted to part with anything. Aladdin was always more of the Robin Hood, who even when he got something, he would give it away. Like the bread bread. in the opening scene, he always shared it. Um, And I love the attention to detail because those kids that he gave the bread to get a piece of this treasure. They they planted them in Agrabah uh, once he starts giving it away. But I love that... uh, Abu still has that nature where he's going to backslide and he wants it for himself. Right. Uh, The only thing, and this time I will be intentionally critical here, um, to escape the jam and get out of this cave with the treasure, uh, obviously the carpet gets them out. The carpet is so much less detailed here, which is insulting to our friend Randy Cartwright, and that's what makes me upset. But otherwise, that's really like the only flaw with this film. Yeah, I mean, the animation isn't as bad as the animation was in Bell's Magical World. No, nobody's cross-eyed here. Um, but obviously, you can tell that it was cheaper. And, and and you know that by the end of the movie, it says, produced by Walt Disney Television. Television Studios, yes. So, it was done by what later became Disney Toons, right? Um that animation division. I mean, the, the the movie had a $5 million budget. Not an awful lot. But for the most part, the animation is still good. I, the animation is not as bright and vibrant. That was something that even as a kid stood out to me. It seemed like the colors were a lot more muted and a lot darker. But you're right. The carpet doesn't have the detail that it did have. Given the fact that it is a lower budget straight to VHS sequel, I'm willing to give it a little bit of a pass, but it's the the animation isn't as crisp. But here's what's interesting to me is that once Randy Cartwright did the initial animation for the carpet, they did use the computer to do it. That way they could keep replicating that design and he's not sitting there, you know, getting arthritis right. over it. Um, so if you use the computer the first time... Why not now? And I I am never an advocate over a computer, over hand-drawn, but I'm saying if this is a place where it was a little bit easier and you did it the first time to to keep the integrity of this intricate design, why not now? Well, because it's it's a lot more expensive. In fact, I believe, if if I read, and I believe I did read this correctly, this was the first Disney animated classic to actually get a sequel. None of them had had sequels prior to this. The success of this is what led to them getting sequels, and then they would go back years later and, oh, we need a Bambi sequel. It's 2005. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, they all came 
off the back of this. Because on a $5 million budget, this movie made, between video rental and video sales, this movie made $300 million on a $5 million budget. Wow. That totally makes sense, though, because you and I have been going in chronological order of the Disney renaissance. So we started with Little Mermaid 2, obviously did Beauty and the Beast last week. Now we're at Aladdin. That's the order that the originals came out. It's not obviously the order that the sequels are out. Right. But that tracks, though, because I remember the popularity of Aladdin. When this film came out, and I remember it so vi- vividly because that was a Disney year that we went, they had the Aladdin float in the parade, which was like the big centerpiece yeah. of the parade with the spitting camels, which you, you can now find at Aladdin's flying carpets. Um, you know, they had the genie coming out of it he was the biggest set piece in that parade yeah that float overshadowed Minnie and Mickey quite honestly and you also had an Aladdin character breakfast at MGM which I remember because I went to um so I think that's not to take away from the popularity of the Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast those films were huge but I think that was when Disney was still sort of climbing the ladder out of the hole that they were in. We've talked about it ad nauseum that Little Mermaid is what saved this company. But I think it was, you know, at the time, business-wise, they were looking at it as, okay, was this a fluke? And then you one-up it with Beauty and the Beast. And it's like, okay, now we're back on track here. And then you one-up it with Aladdin. So now they've probably got a little bit more money to play with. And that's probably why they wanted to reinvest in Aladdin more quickly than Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Yes, strike while the iron's hot. Exactly, exactly. Let's talk about Iago and Jafar here. I like this film as a vehicle for Iago. I like... Iago was great in the first movie. I I think that he was a great foil to Jafar at times. He was a great mouthpiece for Jafar. He was a great uh, confidant for Jafar. But there were times in that film where you could see that he was getting sick and tired of it. And I love that they use that as a jumping off point for, okay, you know what? I'm sick and tired of you, but you're also stuck in this lamp. I'm going to go do me now. And I'm going to go concern myself with just me. I thought that it was brilliant. And I thought that Iago's the type of character that even though he was a bad guy, you liked him. So you had to find a way to make him more likable. And I think that this was the best way to go about it. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think this was such an interesting choice for the movie to take because this could have gone a million ways. I mean, the genie was not only the most popular character in this film, he's one of the most popular characters in the Disney canon. And you would think that the obvious choice would be to do a sequel based on him, especially when you think about where you leave him off in the first film. I'm free now. I want to go see the world. They could have done a million things with Genie on his own solo adventures or put him at the forefront of how does he, you know, fit into Aladdin's life in the palace. And instead they chose a much more interesting story to follow here. I love that they took, you're right, because even though Iago was on the side of the villains, he was a very interesting character because most of the time you got the impression that he was just carrying out orders. And now 
they're really going to break that open and explore that. So I love that choice. I love that they seamlessly pick up right where we left off because we see Jafar grab Iago and take him into the lamp. Yeah. So I like that they play with that idea of Iago has to be at the forefront getting them out of the situation because Jafar is trapped. Right. Iago still has a little bit more of his own agency. Yes. So I think that that was just a brilliant choice. And what I really, really like about it here is that it's such an interesting parallel to the genie in the original film. We're going to talk about this more um, because Looking Out For Me is such a clever song because it does really give you a lot of plot and a lot of Iago's intention. Um, But what it is setting up here is that Iago was always Jafar's right hand. So now he's going to step out into the spotlight and act in his own self-interest. But when you think about it, that's really the antithesis of what it was with the genie and Aladdin's relationship because they both needed each other. Aladdin needed his wishes to um, advance himself and his position in life. And, you know, while he didn't wish for riches immediately, that's still sort of the avenue that he took. Right. But in turn, the genie needed him just as much because he needed that third wish. So I thought it was so interesting that that story is about friendship and learning to trust and needing each other. And now you're kicking off this story with, nope, I'm just looking out for number one. And I love how Iago trips and falls into the perfect plot when they are in the marketplace. Yes. He doesn't mean to save Aladdin from Abbas Small and his men. It happens inadvertently because he's really just defending himself. But he's constantly scheming. And you see that from the minute he gets into the marketplace that he's scheming. When he covers himself in dirt to try and play up the sympathy card... And he's just so quick and he thinks on the fly and he's so calculated. I always enjoyed it and I appreciate it more even now that that's how they set this entire thing up. Right. I love that they didn't go for the redemption arc out of the gate by making it an intentional save and him lording that over Aladdin's head, which he does, but it's not because it came from a genuine place. So throughout this film, it does still toss and turn of whether or not you're actually going to be able to trust him, which again makes for a much more interesting story instead of, okay, I saved you. You owe me. Get me back into the palace. Yeah. The only place where I think that sort of works against the story is for Aladdin because we've seen him have so much growth We've seen him lose the princess. He had to earn her trust back. And now he's going to start to backslide a little bit because he's lying to her. Yes. Um, And this is where, to me, the setup is still a little janky because, you know, we've seen him. We talked about it earlier. We've seen him do this Robin Hood thing before. But we don't really get clarity on why he is still doing it I mean you could you could read into it that he wants to pay it forward because he did have a lot of help obviously getting to his new place in life right but there's a couple things where I feel like we need a little bit more clarity on because he he goes to the princess and he gives her the flower 
she obviously doesn't know what he's out doing. And at first I was a little confused, like, is he definitely living in there? And we do get that clarity from Miago later. He says as much, what? The street rats living in the palace now? So what does Jasmine think that he's out doing all day? He already is sort of lying to her. And the other thing that I was sort of confused about is why is he living in the palace? Because they're not married yet. We know that she chose him, but... The Sultan is only just instilling this title on him. So he doesn't have a job there. They're not married. And I was kind of like, is, was this sort of a charity thing? Because he didn't really have a home. And, you know, they don't really lean into this idea of the princess and the Sultan sort of reached out to him and took him in because he didn't have a place to go. Well, I, I don't think that you necessarily need to. I think given what he did for Agrabah, what he did for the Sultan, helping defeat Jafar the first time around, I think that this was just, I think it was an act of charity. I don't think that they were going to cast him out again and say, thanks for everything. Uh, you'll marry my daughter eventually because she chose you, but go back to being homeless. I... I don't really think that that necessarily needed to be fleshed out. My bigger problem is to the point that you just made uh, a few moments ago. And it's something that even as a kid, it didn't sit well with me. He has this full circle moment in the original film. He learns that he didn't need to lie. He didn't need to be Prince Ali. And yet, here we are lying again it's like you just can't help yourself but to get into trouble continuously frankly he could have just as easily to me brought Iago in and said well you took in a street rat everybody gets a second chance and they could have been upset with him that he brought Iago back he could have made his case and they could have been cautiously optimistic but said okay well as the first uh, order or the first task as the royal vizier will give you this chance. Consider this a probationary period. The fact that he lies to Jasmine again, and and it, up to this point, to to like you said, what does she think he's been doing when he leaves, and he comes back with this jeweled flower? He, you know he, he didn't uh, buy it. He didn't buy it because he doesn't have any money, which means he either stole it or he spent yours. And she does say that. That's kind of a weak point in the writing because she does say this must have cost a fortune. Yeah, but I like his little fourth wall break where he goes, it was a steal. For that much, it's worth it. There is a little bit of a step backwards with the character. He He's very much the same in all the reasons that we want him to be the same. But... It is a little tiresome that he will continue to get himself into trouble. Well, that's where I'm saying we could have just used a little bit more clarity now in this scene as far as him living there and why. Because we don't get that confirmation until the next scene where Iago says it. So when you're watching this for the first time, this does all make it a little bit confusing that he's still stealing to give her some. And even that in and of itself is kind of disrespectful to her because they're letting you live here. 
and you still had to go and steal something as a gift for her. I mean, like, obviously he doesn't have his own wealth yet, but it's just kind of like you had to work so hard to earn her trust back. Why are you duping her? But that's not even the most egregious thing is after Jasmine tells him about the dinner and he's still kind of getting, he knows he's hiding Iago. He's getting a little swirly. The tell for Aladdin, right, is always that voice changing pitch. Yep. So it's very insulting to Jasmine, especially when he doubles down with, I already lost you once that day. I'm, or I already lost you once that way. I'm not going to do it again. And then does it. And then does exactly that. Yeah. And then perfectly on cue, the genie saves him. I because love Genie's this. back. Oh, it's wonderful. I love how the genie returns. I love that they that he they ask him how he could have possibly gotten all of this done so quickly, and he goes into it's a small world. Um, I think that his return makes sense. I love that he has seen and learned so much. Um, and again, it's it's a seamless transition. And what I like about it is they don't tell us exactly how much time has passed between the events that concluded the first film and where we are now. But because they are alluding to everything happening so quickly, because Aladdin still is in his street rack clothes, because he has only just been named the Royal Vizier, it has led us to believe that not much time has passed. So again, it it lends itself to that very natural progression. Because had this been a year later... We would have wondered, why is all of this only happening now? Yes. I'm fine that they didn't give us a hard timestamp because they leave enough of a breadcrumb trail for us to pick it up. I would say this is somewhere between two weeks and a month. Yeah. And I think that's safe to assume. Um, but yeah, I I love this moment for Jeannie's character. I mean, obviously, they do make a big deal out of it with a song and dance number, but I feel like what gets a little bit lost is what a big deal it is for Jeannie to have chosen to come back to them. Yeah. Like, yes, it is said as much in the song, but when you really think about it, you know, I mentioned before that the original story is the buddy story between the two of them and them learning to trust each other and not act in their own self-interest. But the genie is free. That's all he ever wanted. That was his motivation for sticking with Aladdin in the first one. So now he's got this freedom. He's done everything that he wants to do with it. And he could be anywhere in the world right now, but he is choosing to be back with who he chose as his family. Right. Um, so I, I that's the only thing where I feel like for the genie's character, it is downplayed. And other than getting a whole song about it, I feel like he just deserved more of a character moment for coming back to his chosen family. So while that's happening, now we have Abismal and Jafar defining their relationship, having everything get fleshed out between them. And I think that they as a pair are perfect because Abismal is never in control. We know this from the start of the film. He thinks he's in control, but he never actually is. I love how Jafar forces him to burn the first two wishes, but Abismal still knows how to be deceitful and says, well, you need me, so I'll get you the other wish eventually. They do a really good job very quickly of developing 
this relationship. They get in, they get out, they don't waste a lot of time. We know exactly who these characters are and what the formula is that is going to keep this partnership together. I completely agree. It's great writing as far as the plot. There's one thing that I bump on, though, and I bump on it in the beginning of the movie where Iago throws the lamp down a well, a well in the middle of the desert. I'll buy it for Iago because he can fly so he could see it. But how did Abbas Mal find it? I mean, okay, if there's a well in the middle of the desert, you're going to need a drink, right? So I buy that they're all stopping. But why a well in the middle of the desert? Like, how how is this even there in the first place? I'll turn my head the other way because, to your point, the relationship between Abbas Mal and Jafar is just so brilliant. I love how Jafar, out of the gate, as soon as he's out of this lamp, is butthurt that he's been cramped up in there. But we just said that. How long have you really been in there? Compared to the genie, 10,000 years, he's got a creak in the neck. You've done maybe a month at best. And he's already dying to get, but that's so Jafar, right? He's going to be so dramatic. I love the callback to the original because technically Aladdin burns his second wish because Jafar tied him to cement, threw him in the, again, ocean in the desert, but whatever. Um, The genie makes him use the wish in order to save his life. Right. And even though he had to burn a wish. It was all obviously for the greater good. And, and you know, he had the best of intentions doing that here. We see that Jafar is clearly smarter than Abbas Mal. Of course he's going to be, but the way that he goes about this is so conniving playing up on the literal wish. And obviously this is not what Abbas Mal is actually wishing for, but on a technicality, Jafar burns through them. Yeah. It's it's brilliant. And it keeps him positioned as your big bad. Right. So now we get to the dinner scene where Aladdin is named the royal vizier. Well, he's got an offer because that is True. going to come back into play later. He's got the offer from the sultan. Here's the interesting thing to me, though. Aladdin is already going to be the Sultan's successor because Jasmine chose him. So why does he need this title? Unless is the Sultan trying to justify him being in the palace now? Because eventually Aladdin will become Sultan. I think that he's just positioning him. I think this is like an apprenticeship. I think it's a learning curve. I think that's why he's doing it. And I think that there is... A certain level of the Sultan appreciates Aladdin for everything that he's done. But I think he's trying to show them that he appreciates him more than just, oh, my daughter chose you. I think that this is a way of him building a bridge between themselves and sort of helping guide him along into the role that he knows he's eventually going to have to take. No, and I do like that because it goes one step further. Like, not just I like you as my son-in-law, but I like you as a person and I think that's also where you had hit on this before but this is where it really comes into play where when Iago is eventually revealed 
And Aladdin says, I will take full responsibility for him. That's why the Sultan trusts him. Because how could you say I trust you to be my right hand and then not put it into practice, even though you have a slight hiccup with Iago? Yeah. The other thing that stands out to me in this scene, and again, stood out to me as a kid, hasn't changed in 30, just about 30 years. It hasn't changed. As much as I love Aladdin, as endearing as he is, you have to learn how to explain a situation. You could literally put his face on a (laughs) t-shirt with the caption, Jasmine, I can explain. And everybody would know exactly what that meant and have a laugh over it. He is just abysmal when it comes to explaining anything to anyone. No, and I wish it would have gotten said now in this moment, Iago saved my life because where does that sound familiar? That someone saved your life in the marketplace. Oh, that's what Aladdin did for you, you hypocrite. It, But then you lose a lot of conflict. So at the same time, you do kind of have to sacrifice your main character and have him shoot himself in the foot yet again because you're going to lose a lot of what is driving the plot forward. Um, to me, the big standout in this scene, I love that the guard to this day is still so bloodthirsty. He doesn't yes. care who it is. He doesn't care that Aladdin is in the palace now. He just wants to execute someone. And if it's Aladdin, even better. <laughs> exactly. I love the scene that comes next, though. Uh, The scene and the relationship that develops between the genie and Iago. Yes. Where now, because you always had it was the genie, the carpet, and Abu. Right. But now you have this really interesting dynamic where Abu is still there, the carpet not so much, and it's about Iago. And I love that you take these two characters and you build this relationship and this bond over we have to get Jasmine to forgive Aladdin. I thought that it was very well done. Right. And this is where you can kind of forgive Aladdin shooting himself in the foot in the scene before, because then you lose all of this relationship building with Iago and not only the genie, but with Jasmine too. Right. Because he is trying to actually do the right thing because now Aladdin saved his life from the Sultan carrying out an order. So, Now Iago not only feels like he owes him one, he's experiencing something he probably never has before, which is guilt, because he cares. So he is actually trying to do right by Aladdin and do something truly caring for Jasmine here. So this is a big moment that comes through an absolutely brilliant song, which I cannot wait to talk about later. Um, so this is where, again, like I'm willing to look the other way with, even though Aladdin had to take a few hits and he's down a few pegs now, it does work for everyone else. And what it does is it sets up this really great scene when Jafar and Abba Small get back to the palace and they find Iago, who now everybody trusts. And Iago really against his own will because he's trying to save his own neck has to do the exact thing that he swore he wasn't going to do again. And he double crosses everyone and 
he really just makes he makes them all very honest people because he does the exact thing that everybody expected him to do but we see from the outside looking in that he is doing it against his will but this is this is where the writing is so good that is you took the words right out of my mouth this is just great writing plain and simple because just when you trust Iago as the audience. Just when he has earned everyone's trust from a genuine place, they flip the entire film on its head here. Um, and it's so great that we know he's being forced, but how it unravels for everyone else, it, it's just brilliant. When the Sultan gets captured, after he takes the carpet ride with Aladdin, they go to this very scenic picturesque area a lush area with a waterfall in the desert in the desert um we're willing to overlook that because they did i don't in a whole know. new world well, so we, i'll kind of all right well, the whole new world is a little different though because i got the feeling that you were traveling a great distance yeah we don't really know how far they travel here and i'm not even so sure that this place is real I don't know if this is a place that they actually oh. knew to go to or if this is a place that Jafar lured them to and it's just not even a real place. Fair. Because even even Iago and Aladdin don't seem so sure as to where they actually are. I mean, Jafar, Iago knows that Jafar has lured them in, but it doesn't seem like Aladdin's even all that familiar with this place because they kind of just crash land there. Right, because Iago is telling the carpet where to go. I mean, not yeah. like explicitly, but this isn't the carpet just flying them around at random. Correct. So you have this great moment with the Sultan and Aladdin. And it's interrupted by Jafar. And you feel so bad for the Sultan who's like finally like taking his shoes off to go have a good time. It ultimately costs him. And you feel bad for Iago because you know that he's been duped and you know that he doesn't want any of this to happen. But again, this is the really brilliant, brilliant writing. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for Iago. It's so well done. Yeah. Um. Now we get back to the palace and they find the turban and the dagger in Aladdin's bedroom. And... Jasmine sentences him to death. Still stings. Still stings. Well, this is Jafar as Jasmine. No, this is Jasmine. This is not Jafar as Jasmine. Jafar as Jasmine is who goes to the execution. This was actually Jasmine. No, she's being captured at this point. I didn't think that she had been. I, I see where you think that because I thought the same thing too. But when we watched it through a second time, no, it's. Because otherwise, why would they reveal Jafar? She comes right from declaring that he's going to be executed into the dungeon where she is already handcuffed. So it's Jafar the whole time. Which I'm glad you did bring that up, though, because that was one of the things that sort of went off in my head is that if he can shapeshift, why didn't he just go to the palace and pit everyone against each other the entire time? I feel like that would have been a very easy route to take, and I'm glad that they didn't, and it's yeah. a lot more nuanced than that. But go ahead. You were trying to make your point. Well, just that at this point, everything is crumbling around them. Everything is falling down around them. Jafar ultimately 
has taken control of the situation, but because we later see that he can shapeshift, um, it really gives him everything that he needs. All he needed was to get to the palace. At this point, all he needs now is the freedom, because he doesn't lose his power. Genie didn't lose his power either, even though he was freed. So he can do what he has to do, get Abyss Small everything that he needs to get him to get the third wish. And of course, we we don't trust that he's actually going to get any of this uh, of treasure. But this is where I start thinking to myself, you know, this is so well done that you probably could have released this in a theater instead of going straight to VHS. And obviously it worked because it made them, you know, $295 million net. This could have been something that went and got released in the movies. And now that Disney's doing their Disney 100, instead of putting something like The like the Incredibles is getting a run at, at the time of this recording, instead of doing something like The Incredibles, maybe you go and do something like Return of Jafar oh. and finally give it its run. Or something like an Oliver and Company. You know, go and do something that maybe you can give it a second life. Nobody needs that. I, I love The Incredibles. It doesn't need a second life in the movie theater. Something like this, I would I would have loved to go see this. I would have actually paid for a ticket and gone and seen this at the movies if they had re-released it. Oh, 100%. Um, because to your point, it is just so brilliant. And that comes down to the attention to detail because you were talking about how Jafar doesn't lose his power and neither does the genie but they do cover that because the genie does say that his power isn't what it what it used to be it's slightly lessened because he's not in the lamp anymore right and had they not done that little throwaway line you could make the argument of how how does the genie not just take Jafar down because they're going to be equally matched. You had to knock Genie down because otherwise this would have been resolved so quickly. And that's really one of my only other points that I bump on a little bit. I feel like defeating Jafar drags and that this scene sort of feels like it goes on for a while, but let that be the worst thing about this film. I mean, I thought the final battle was fine. It drags a little bit, but not all that long. Um, And I love it for Iago. Yes. I I love that he is the one that ultimately kicks the lamp into the lava um, and undoes all of the chaos that Jafar had unleashed. Uh, for a movie that has a fairly short runtime, I'm okay with it having the length that it does, the final battle, I should say. I mean, I think it would have dragged on a lot more had they not captured the genie and it was genie versus Jafar because first of all you strip down Iago's redemption arc if you do it that way right but secondly if it's two people that are equally or two characters I should say that are equally matched and they're just you know against each other it it would feel like Batman versus Superman and we'd be getting the Snyder cut and then it would drag even more I want to ask you though because I feel like everything does get resolved and tied up in a bow very nicely but what about where we're going to leave Aladdin and Jasmine? Because, I mean, this really is Iago's story. He is technically the main character of this film. But for our main prince and princess, what do you think about where they're being left off? Because Aladdin rejects the Sultan's offer to become his royal vizier. 
and he wants to go see the world. And the argument is, I don't want to be, I can't do that from the palace. Um, that was always Jasmine who wanted out of the palace. It's what got her to sneak into the marketplace and meet Aladdin in the first place. So that was always her thing about seeing the world. And it's why she gravitated toward Aladdin because he wanted to show her that. Ipso facto, the carpet ride. So to me, I kind of feel like they gave Aladdin Jasmine's motivation. I think that Jasmine... It... It, it seems like this would have been something that made more sense, perhaps to conclude the first film. But I don't. I certainly don't have an issue with them concluding the sequel this way. Um, I think you needed to give Aladdin that offer because Aladdin, all he wanted was to be a prince, get the princess, live in the palace. Now he has that opportunity, and he's turning it away. I think for Jasmine, they're going to take that journey together. Makes sense. I, I think that I think the genie returning and Aladdin seeing what a life the genie had because he went and had this adventure. I think that's what motivated him more than anything else. I think it had less to do with I'm taking what Jasmine wanted and more that he's piggybacking off of what the genie has experienced. So I think that uh, it was it was a fine way to end the film. I, I don't feel any certain way about it it certainly didn't bother me that that's how they opted to end this version of the film i'll buy that i i don't agree with you though that it would have been more fitting for the first film because aladdin's goal the whole time was to get himself into the palace and he did that so yeah i think turning that down right away would have been a little hasty but to do it now after he's experienced more growth um, I think it works. I just wish they would have, I think maybe expanded it a little bit more and, and maybe gave him a line of, you know, if I'm going to be Sultan one day, I want to go and experience life and, and get a bigger understanding of people and other cultures. And that would make me a more effective leader than being your vizier now. Right. And, and then it also does track for, Aladdin's eye on the prize of I'm going to rule one day. I wanted to get in the palace. I'm going to hold the power. I want to be a good leader. And now he's skipping the step of, you know, being the Sultan's right hand and he's preparing himself to fully take over. Right. Um, are we ready to talk about <clears throat> our voice cast? Yes. All right. And I do have one correction. I, I was partially correct before. This was not the first animated classic to have a sequel the rescuers down under was however this was the first straight to vhs sequel i wasn't really counting rescuers because that was a theatrical release right so i i was partly right and partly wrong but let's talk about the cast here they got most of the original cast back but let's talk for a second about the big blue elephant in the room <laughs> yes because Robin Williams did not come back as the genie. Uh, Dan Castellaneta, who everyone knows is Homer Simpson, and you can hear it. Yeah. And even as a kid, I was like, is that Homer Simpson? But because we watch The Simpsons all of the time, I remember watching the end credits, and I was like, oh, that's the same name. 
I but nev- let's talk about this though. I never realized it as a kid, but once I looked it up now, I can't unhear oh! every time the genie opens his mouth. Um, I mean, that's not to say I, I think he did a fine job. I mean, I think he did a very good job as a child. You you kind of know it's not Robin Williams, but you don't really read anything else anything into it or you think it's Robin Williams but he's having like an off day or whatever I never really noticed it that much until right now but I think what stands out to me more than anything else is knowing now the relationship that Eric Goldberg and Robin Williams had and they were equally imperative in creating this character and they both had so much input to make the genie what he is that's what is standing out I saw this interview recently where Eric Goldberg said that he would watch Robin in the recording booth and they developed such a shorthand that when Robin Williams improvised the line about Aladdin being a liar and he goes yeah woo." Eric Goldberg knew Pinocchio and they didn't even like talk about it. He just knew to draw it. And I think that that's what you're losing here is how much of Robin's voice acting drove the animation here. I feel like the animation led the voice and the performance is all in the animation and the voice actor just had to catch up with it. And it feels very different. And it's not his fault. No. And I oh, thought, no. I thought he did a very good job. You know, Robin Williams is not somebody that you can just replace. But the whole reason why Robin Williams doesn't appear in this film, I I had assumed that they just passed because of money. That's not at all what happened. In fact, I Robin think he would have done it for free. Well, Robin Williams, I believe, you know, in the first film, I think he made it for $75,000. And at that point, he had been getting $8 million for films, like, legitimately. He took less money to get the film because they couldn't have afforded to do the movie otherwise. The whole thing here, like, the, the dispute, and it took years, years for Disney to mend the fence with Robin Williams. Like, what Disney did to him was dirty pool, but at the same time, I kind of couldn't understand Robin Williams' perspective on this. So he took less money to get the role as the genie with the agreement that his voice does not get used in advertising for merchandise. To put his voice in the trailer, you're not going to not put the genie's voice in the trailer for the film. He got upset that his voice was getting used to sell toys because they were taking clips from the movie and putting it into commercials. And it's like, if you built that into your contract, so be it. And if you took a pay cut to do it, so be it. But you have to know what Disney's going to do if they have a successful character. They're going to license the crap out of it. They're going to put it on every Happy Meal, every toy that they possibly can, make it into a doll, and sell it. Right. Like... What did you think Disney was going to do? Is Disney going to advertise a genie toy without using the genie? I mean, I guess he just assumed that they would get another voice actor to do it. It, I mean, it's, you know who you're getting in bed with, right? Like, I'm I'm just saying, like, it's dirty pull on Disney's part, but at the same time, 
what do you expect them to do? Right. Even if they make the toy and a commercial with another voice actor, which I believe, yeah, because it, it's like a known fact. Tom Hanks talks about how his brother does Woody right. for the video games and the toy. Like Tom Hanks can't be everywhere. Uh, that's a great deal, if you ask me. That's yeah. nepotism at its finest. And nobody has a problem with that. Not the fans, not the Hanks family, no one. So I I think he probably knew that they were going to use another actor in the commercials and to sell the toys. But I mean, being that the film is in the can, it's very easy for Disney to roll a clip in a commercial and, and use that to drive the narration in the commercial, even if it's not a voiceover, so to speak. Yes. Um, Val Betton plays the Sultan in this film. Was not the original Sultan. However, took over the Sultan for this role. And I mean, if I'm being honest, but I, I hardly I, I couldn't tell you the difference between one and the next. No. Uh, Linda Larkin comes back as Princess Jasmine. However, they did change the singing voice. Yes. Um, so that was kind of a surprise because they have returned to Leia Salonga before. Um, she is really the only person who has ever voiced two Disney princesses because they brought her back from Mulan. Um, but instead, they brought in Liz Calloway, who... 90s kids are definitely going to recognize as the singing voice for Anastasia in Anastasia and Odette in The Swan Princess. What I know her from, if you were really, really lucky, you would know her as Grizabella in My Favorite and Sean's Cats, the musical now and forever at the Winter Garden Theater. I have I have talked on this show before about the trauma. <laughs> Cats. I still I still can't watch that commercial. It still gives me chills. He's not exaggerating. He can't. Like, I can't even really play the soundtrack in front of him. No, no interest. Trauma. Um, no, but that was my first play. I've loved it because, contrary to you, I wasn't terrified of the commercial. I was completely enraptured by it. And my aunt took my brother and I to see it. And we happened to get Liz Calloway. And I, I always remembered her name just because... She was so incredible, and I loved how she sang Memory. Um, and when I finally put the two and two together that she voiced Jasmine, I just thought that that was the coolest thing. And I also happened to love Anastasia and the Swan Princess, so I just thought that that was so cool that I got to see some somebody that I admired so much in these animated films sing it live. Um, but yeah, I just I just thought that that was really cool that they got her for this. Jason Alexander plays Abbas Small. And I, I love Jason Alexander. I, I Even as a kid, I liked Seinfeld. But I love Jason Alexander. Like, I think, wasn't even Dunstan Checks In. Like, he did a lot of movies that we watched as kids. And I love him in this role of, he's smarmy, he's arrogant, and he has absolutely no right to be. Like, he was perfect. And then, of course, he goes on and does Hunchback. But, like, he was he was perfect in this role. Yeah. I I really love the bumbling fool quality that he gave him. Yeah. And I mean, other than that, they got the rest of the cast came back, which I think speaks volumes as to what it meant for all of them to come back and do this. And again, it's kind of like, wow, you, you really did invest a lot into putting something that was going to go straight to video cassette. And I think that that's evident in the music as well. 
I'm just going to say this now, and this might not make me a lot of friends, but as a blanket statement, this music and these songs are so incredible. I would say that this is on par with anything that Alan Menken and Howard Ashman did. I don't disagree with that. I, I mean, I, I think that there are moments where you can tell that the lyricist is not the same, but they do manage to get a lot of that tongue-in-cheek humor, very whimsical, very funny, very smart. The turn of phrase, like Howard Ashman. It's close. Yeah. Starting with I'm Looking Out For Me. I love this moment for Iago. I think that it's a great setup, not only for the character, but for the entire plot of the film. And you give Gilbert Gottfried a shot to sing. And you don't think, like, I need to listen to that man sing a song. And he gets quite a <laughs> few of them. But he does a really good job with them. He does. Honestly, I thought it was a risky move giving Iago the first song because he's not a main character. I mean, first song, we'll use the term loosely because we did say it before. We do get the callback with Arabian Nights and they did change the lyrics up a little bit to pull us back into the setting, but give us something familiar. But technically, this is the first song. Uh, but to me, this was big risk, big reward. Um, I think it's brilliant because this is the antithesis to Friend Like Me. And that's what's really driving this plot forward uh, is that the genie and Aladdin recognized how much they need each other. And Iago's saying, nope, I don't need anyone. I don't need anyone. It's me, me, me. But he learns throughout the course of this film, that is his arc, that he's got to learn to trust people and let people into his life. Um, and I think that that's brilliant. And I love how plot driven this song is other, other than being just catchy. Uh, what I also really, really love is Iago reenters Agrabah like Aladdin enters the palace in Prince Ali. He's on an elephant. He's got all the other animals flying around him. Yeah. So I thought that that was such a, I, I just love the attention to detail there, and I thought that was such a great wink and a nod. Nothing in the world quite like a friend. I've always loved it. I loved it as a kid. Um, I think the animation works really well with the song. I think that it's a bit of an earworm. However, of all of the songs in this film that I don't think have aged quite that well, this one has aged to become a little cheesy. Um, it's not that it's not fun, but this very much feels like a forced genie song because we had to give the genie a song and a sequel. It and when Aladdin and Jasmine join in, nothing in the whole wide world. It's just like, <laughs> oh man, it, there it is. It is cheesy. I I agree with most of what you said, cheese factor included. Um, but I think that you need it for more reasons than just giving the genius song. I mean, to me, this is where you feel not having Robin Williams the most, because I feel like he would have had a lot of fun with it, with this. And I feel I would have loved to have seen what he could do with it. And this is where it's hitting so hard, even though they didn't bring him back for this film. When you think about the time that's passed and who we've lost from the Aladdin cast since then, like 
between him and Gilbert Gottfried, like that is a tough pill to swallow. Um, but where I disagree with you, I mean, is it catchy? No doubt. Is it a great moment for the genie? No doubt. Um, but I think you need this for more reasons than just giving him a song because it's like what I was speaking about before with you need to give him that moment of this is a very big deal that he came back for his chosen family when he can be anywhere. And of all the songs, this is the least plot driven, but it is important for the character. Forget about love. Everything about this song yeah. is perfection. And honestly, this we talked a couple of weeks ago with our friends Joe and Tyler about yep. the top 100 Disney songs. Yep. Um, of which it only dawned on me the other day yep. that nothing from Nightmare was on that list. Oh. There are a lot of songs that don't belong on that list. And this one should be on that list. Get out of my head, man. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, it, I mean, we only did our top 10 when you and I ranked them of our favorite personal songs. This would be in my top 50 easily. I have loved it since I was a kid, not just because it's catchy, but I think that the composition is absolutely brilliant. I love the lyric for the reverse psychology that you start out with Iago trying to downplay love and it ends up completely tricking Jasmine. I love that it starts out with a, as a duet between Jasmine and Iago and it morphs into a duet with Aladdin. Um, so, so the composition is incredible. And the way that it pushes the plot forward, too. This, this song literally covers everything. And this is where I'm saying it is on par with anything that Alan Menken and Howard Ashman ever did. Because this type of clever writing is, is something that they were only able to capture as far as hitting on character and plot in, in equal measure and driving everything forward. It's just so brilliant. Um, before we move on to the next song, there is a little wink and a nod that I do want to shout out. Um, when Abu and the genie finish the picnic that genie brought, when Aladdin takes the sultan out and, Ala and Jasmine explains, oh no, it's just going to be the two of them. They're having right. a bonding moment. Uh, you do get Be Our Guest sampled yes. underneath that. And I, I absolutely love that they gave the wink and the nod to our favorite composers. You're only second rate. The final song of the film. Bop. Great song for Jafar. The animation is great. Again, they knock it out of the park. Like, Disney didn't have to go so hard. <laughs> yes. And they did. Um, it, It's a total banger. And this is where, as if Forget About Love didn't solidify it enough, this also reminded me of the Howard Ashman song. Because just the turn of phrase in the lyrics, the yes. rhyme scheme... um. So just hats off to all of the, the composers and lyricists because they, they use so many different ones. This was uh, not an instance of getting the same uh, composer and lyricist throughout. They had a ton of different people working on each different song. And yet that's the, that's the amazing thing too. All of the songs feel so cohesive that I'm sitting yeah. here saying they remind me of Mencken and Ashman. Final thoughts. On the return of Jafar. Uh, short and sweet. This is not only one of the best Disney sequels of all time. It's one of the best sequels of all time. 
period. Fight me. I don't give it a perfect score because of the few steps backwards that we take with Aladdin as a character. I agree. However, up to this point in time, it is the best straight-to-video sequel. Now, we've got a couple of more that we're going to, you know, investigate. And maybe, I hope we find something that's almost as good. Because if we do, it's a treasure. Um, but at, at as, as of right now, it is the best. As of right now, I do think it could have gotten released in the movie theaters. And I think that you're right. It is, just all in all, one of the best sequels ever made. Just in terms of capturing... A passage of time, capturing a setting, capturing a very organic continuation of a story. Yes. They knocked it out of the park. We are interested in knowing what you have to say about the return of Jafar. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us your thoughts, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first a quick break. Hey, everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney. And when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it. Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing. On top of that, it was stress-free, so all my vacations in the future are gonna be through her because I don't have to think about it. She plans it, I give her some information in regards to what I wanna do and create the itinerary for me. She's a market expert. She advised on which rides to attack first, which restaurants I should schedule on what day, and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation. It was an amazing process. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets, or you can email me directly at monorealradio at gmail.com. And you're going to want to do that because they just virtually unveiled the Disney treasure. And this is, in my opinion, the coolest ship to date. Yes, so uh, they they just had the unveiling. It was supposed to be last week, postponed to this week. I didn't know what a virtual unveiling would be. I have to give credit where credit is due. This is like the Disney production yes. and storytelling that we have loved for so long. It's what I wish they still did with must-do Disney. They don't anymore. It's what I wish they still did with vacation planning videos. They don't anymore. Um, or you know what this even felt like to me was the Sunday night movie and stick around after the movie. We're going to unveil the Disney treasure. That's what it felt like because there was so much production value, not even just the ship itself. We're going to get to that. But the intro video and the setup getting there, like there was a character, there was a journey that he was on. He got transported to the ship. Like It was just so well done. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that they did reveal. Um, the Disney treasure is going to be most closely resembled to the Disney wish as yeah. far as layout, size, scope, and everything that there is to offer. Um, in my opinion, this is some of the best theming that they have done on all of the cruise ships. But I'm going to say something I have not said about Disney in a while. This is the most 
cohesive thing that they have done in a very long time. And I don't feel like they just jammed a bunch of IPs in willy-nilly for the sake of getting them there. This, I think, flows and works together so nicely. Yes and no. I mean, Marvel Star Wars are a little a little bit of a reach, but you can't do a cruise ship without them. At this point, you can't. Um, and they did tease a couple of things. Like, they've got World of Marvel, which is not independent to the Disney treasure. But they said that there is going to be a new Marvel dining experience, but they can't tell us any more right now. Th- they said that there's a new Broadway-style show, but they can't tell us any more about that now. My guess would be Aladdin, though, because that's what the main entryway is themed after. And it has been a Broadway show. I mean, it's it's kind of an easy thing to do at this point. Correct. I think that they have the Aquamouse, which we've seen on The Wish. But it was confusing because in the release, they had Donald on a pyramid. And I thought, oh, are they doing Treasure of the Lost Lamp? You know, because that would make sense, especially because DuckTales had a very successful reboot. Could you have done Treasure of the Lost Lamp? But they put Donald on the pyramid, but it's Mickey and Minnie. So I think that there's a there was a little bit of a disconnect there, but kids aren't going to care about that. I think they also have yet to reveal some more things because when they gave us the treasure map with all of the IPs that were going to be included on this ship, they didn't reveal everything. No, like they Lion didn't. King, Pride Rock was on there, for example. They haven't revealed anything, Lion King. And maybe that's the Broadway show. Oh, no, they did. Um, it was Sarabi. Um, they did say something about that. Yeah, it's a dining experience. Yes. Okay, so we did see the Lion King. But I still feel like there's more that they didn't delve into. What I'm most excited about, and this should surprise no one who's listened to this podcast, are the adult lounges and their theming. They are, like, this is perfect. This is why you use IPs like this. So there's going to be one adult lounge that is themed... Not quite like Skipper Canteen, but it will have that Jungle Cruise feel of, you know, you get off the boat and then you go to this lounge and the skippers are hanging out. This feels more close to Trader Sam's, though. So it feels almost like a Skipper Canteen Trader Sam's hybrid. And then the other one, which I was very surprised about, is the the Portal Pub, do they call it? The or por- Periscope. Whole pu- Periscope. Periscope, thank pub. you. Um, which is themed after 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And they even went so far in the video as to credit it as a Walt Disney production because it was one of Walt's movies. And what did we just talk about last week? That they have the series Captain Nemo shot. Nautilus. The Nautilus, I'm sorry. Yeah. But it was supposed to follow Captain Nemo. Yeah, basically like an origin. And it's shot, it's edited, and they're selling it and not putting on Disney+. Plus. So you think highly enough of this IP to include it on a ship. Why wouldn't you hype people up about this cruise ship with a series about it? Because they are trying to make the cruise ship profitable. They are seeing that the streaming service is not profitable. So they're just trying to devalue to save tax money. 
and they're I, I going to use that series like a commercial. I bet they I are going to tie it to the ship a little bit n- more. Now, look, I completely agree with what you're saying. When you are getting ready to unveil the treasure, which is going to be a crown jewel of your cruise line, and you put an emphasis on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, scrapping the Nautilus show to devalue something to save tax money because you have no other means of making money right now due to the writer's strike and due to the fact that you can't you can't make a good movie for the most part right now is that's the public opinion um yeah it's it's very off-putting that you're going to make this such a focal point because well we can serve an $18 cocktail there but to hell with our streaming service there it is off-putting i i completely agree with you there like of all of the things that are going from this streaming service, this should have been one because they're going to tie it into something that is going to be a, a a focal point of a major stream of income for them for so long in the cruise line. They should have just kept the show and you could have tied it all in and used it as an advertisement for the cruise ship. And, and remember, people that go on the cruise that maybe had no interest in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea... That's a way of also selling them on the Nautilus show. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say is that you're introducing it to a whole new generation if you were to release it on Disney Plus and you would have created hype within your younger audience for a property that they might not be too familiar with. But either way, if they do go forward with selling it, it's still going to be a commercial for this cruise ship because don't think for a second if they do sell it to um whether they put it on network another network television or um another streamer don't think for a second that they're not going to have advertisements for the treasure that run as a part of it that's going to be in the contract that it's going to be the first commercial in the break absolutely but we are interested in knowing what you have to say about the Disney treasure. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. That ship is setting sail starting in December of 2024. Yes, so we have no booking information just yet. My guess is we'll probably be able to start booking it in January. So if you're interested, let me know. That way, as soon as I do get some information, uh, I can pass it your way. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I just gave you that social media. Don't forget we are on Threads and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. I just gave you the email address as well. And for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.